All right, everyone, welcome back to The Jacob Wall Show. We have a lot of news to talk about today. I'm going to get into this pipeline story here and provide you some analysis, not just on what has happened so far, but what you can expect coming next. If indeed this was an action aimed at harming the Russians, aimed at punishing Russia for their actions in Ukraine, then you can expect that Russia will retaliate. And what happens during that retaliation could very well affect you. It could affect uh, me and everyone in the United States and potentially around the world. So we're going to get into all of that, uh, what's going on with the pipeline, what you can expect to happen next. But before we do, I, I just have to show you this story uh, that came out on a similar sort of topic. This is a story from uh, the headline you'll see here on the screen if you're watching live is from NBC News. It's really a reprinted story from the AP Newswire. Uh, but here's the headline over at NBC News. They say, Russia poised to annex occupied Ukraine after sham votes. The results were widely ridiculed as implausible and characterized as a land grab by an increasingly cornered Russian leadership following embarrassing military losses in Ukraine. You look at that headline. That is not the headline from AP. That is the uh, rejiggered headline from NBC News. And it is a headline that just absolutely reads like propaganda. First of all, it's, it's too long, if you include the subtitle there. But they say that this uh, referendum taking place in the Donbass, in the eastern regions of Ukraine, is a sham. Uh, they say that it is a sham election. Well, what leads them to say that exactly? Other than the fact that it's an election that they don't want to happen. Well, uh, we look here, and again, this is a part of the story written by the Associated Press, AP Newswire here. They say, Russia was poised Wednesday to formally annex parts of Ukraine where occupied areas held a Kremlin-orchestrated, quote, referendum denounced by Kiev, the West, as illegal and rigged on living under Moscow's rule. Armed troops had gone door-to-door -door with election officials to collect ballots in five days of voting. Well, that's interesting. So they had gone door-to-door -to, -door to collect ballots in eastern Ukraine. I thought that uh, going door-to-door -to, -door to collect ballots was A-OK. -okay. These very same people, the Democrats, have told us for, what, two, a year and a half, almost two years now, really it is two years when they started kicking this off in the run-up to the 2020 election, that going door-to-door -to, -door to collect ballots is something that is above reproach. It shall not be questioned by the public. They shall not protest it. And if they do, then they are election deniers. They are insurrectionists. They should be thrown into dungeons in Washington, D.C., where hundreds of them remain following January 6th, many of them there for charges as minuscule as trespassing, and yet they remain in dungeons in D.C. There are reports out of the D.C. Metropolitan Correctional Center that are just horrifying. Uh, we have read some of them on my previous show, Man Up with Jacob Bull, over on Censored.tv. Stories of people being starved, stories of people being beaten, uh, several killed in that prison. 
without any explanation, without any investigation. They are there as we speak. These are people to keep in your prayers, absolutely. But they are there in part because they dared question the practice of going door to door to collect ballots. They don't like that idea. It's an idea that has taken place all across the country, all across the United States by Democrats. It's known as ballot harvesting. It is something that is uh, illegal in many states, in fact, here in America. It's illegal in Ohio. It's illegal in Pennsylvania. And yet there are dozens and in some cases hundreds of reports of DNC uh, ballot harvesters going around doing that. Very few reports of Republicans. I haven't really heard of it. Maybe they should be doing it, I guess, in states where it's legal. I can't endorse it if it's against the law. Uh, but in California, it is totally legal. Democrats do it. They go around and they collect uh, unsolicited mail-in ballots that were sent out to people who never, ever requested them, who had no intention of voting. Uh, they say, here's $100, let me take your ballot, or here's a few bucks, let me take your ballot. They sometimes actually help them fill out the ballot. Reports of this out of Minneapolis, of course, uh, people working for Ilhan Omar. And so it is a practice that, uh, of course, we regard, I regard as totally corrupt. Uh, and apparently these people that tell us it's great here in the U.S., well, it's okay for them to do it here in the U.S. It's okay for the Democrat Party to go door-to-door -door collecting ballots here in the U.S., but it isn't okay for Russians to do inside Ukraine as they hold a referendum over these eastern territories who have uh, wanted to join uh, Ukraine, or wanted to join Russia, rather, for many years. And they're finally getting the chance to do that in a vote. Who really knows how legitimate or illegitimate the vote is? Most votes have some corruption. Uh, but again, in, unless these people can prove in a court of law that the Russians are holding a sham vote, they cannot question it. Uh, remember, that is their standard for election legitimacy. Unless a court has found that the election's illegitimate, it is legitimate. And so uh, these people should follow their standard when it comes to referendums in Ukraine, of course. Now, I want to get into this pipeline story here. I had to bring you that quickly because it was just so uh, stunning, so shocking. Uh, we go here now to uh, this pipeline, the Nord Stream pipelines, both uh, Nord Stream 1 and 2, springing a leak, seismologists detecting explosions under the sea, both sections of the pipeline in, in this area, or in these areas, about 70 meters underwater. So not done by a rogue scuba diver, not done by somebody who thought they could play the energy market in all likelihood. Although, uh, you have to imagine whoever was behind this probably did place some bets in the European natural gas futures market. You have to think that. In fact, there was a, a show on AMC years ago called Rubicon. And I, I recommend everybody watch this show. It only lasted one season, unfortunately. It starts off, and, and this was a curse of the show, it starts off incredibly slowly. Uh, the first two episodes of the season that they made are, are just, man, they're just grinding slow. It's really hard to stick with it. But if you get through the first two episodes, it is a phenomenal, phenomenal television show. And what the show gets into is the intersection between the intelligence gleaned by uh, the U.S. intelligence community, the private and public partnership between that Intel community, and these so-called think tanks, in this case, one of them featured in the show, and then how members of the intelligence community, along with their confederates outside the intel community, 
use what they learn to uh, make money in financial markets and in some cases actually manipulate the course of events to do so. This is uh, a textbook instance where somebody was uh, possibly doing just that with this pipeline because, of course, futures went up uh, uh, huge. Futures went up huge. Uh, somebody here in the chat, John, says, uh, if you watch older bald and bankrupt videos from Ukraine, people always supported Russia openly. Of course they did. In eastern Ukraine especially, they supported Russia. I have been to Ukraine. I've spent months in Ukraine personally. Uh, spent a great deal of time there. And uh, that has been my experience as well, for the most part, outside of the most metropolitan, uh, plugged-in people. Uh, they wanted to become part of Russia. And, and I have to tell you this, and, and maybe... Some of you are new to the broadcast, and I haven't you haven't heard me tell these stories before, but you have to remember that Ukraine is completely and utterly corrupt. There is no rule of law in Ukraine. There's no police force. There's no uh, taxation of any kind, really, that's effective and, and reliable. Everyone's on the take. Everyone's being bribed all the time. It's a total culture of corruption. Uh, at every level, you hear these stories of these, uh, you, in fact, you'll see these guys walking around. If you ever go to like Odessa or even Kiev, you'll see these guys walking around and be like a 70-year-old kind of like retired dentist from Seattle, pasty old guy, divorced two or three times, and he's coming to Ukraine to find love. Well, uh, that, of course, is a, a kind of a fleeting pursuit, but he will all of a sudden be surrounded by one or maybe multiple of very attractive young Ukrainian women. And, and you think like, okay, maybe it's a poor country. Uh, maybe these girls are a little desperate, but they aren't that desperate. What they do is they bring them into a restaurant and they uh, have a deal with the restaurant. They get a commission. The restaurant charges the guy's card six, $700. And it's a meal that should have cost, you know, $60 if that, because Ukraine is very cheap. And the girls get a cut and they turn the guy out. I mean, just all kinds of scams like this at every level. Uh, corruption that, if you live in a first world country, you can't even begin to imagine. Petty corruption. I mean, we've got lots of corruption here in the United States, but it is high-level corruption. It's corruption with a suit and a tie and a briefcase. I mean, as a lobbyist, I will tell you that Nobody needs to bribe anyone here in Washington, D.C. You think that uh, briefcases of cash are exchanged on Capitol Hill? They are not. The cases that you hear of outright bribery taking place uh, are very, very rare. If you want to influence a politician in this country, all you have to do is throw them a fundraiser. All you have to do is start a super PAC for them. All you need to do is donate to their campaign. You don't need to bribe them. Why would you? Why would you? You can follow the law to a T in the United States of America and garner more influence with politicians here than you would ever garner with some Ukrainian politician whom you had to bribe uh, with a fanny pack full of cash or a briefcase full of cash. But in Ukraine, the corruption is petty. I mean, it is cops shaking you down left and right. It is just out of control corruption, just to give you some idea. And of course, people wanted to become part of Russia. Because Russia is a little bit less corrupt. They have slightly better rule of law. And so uh, it is a situation in which you are slightly uh, better off. Now, uh, going to uh, what is happening here in this pipeline, 
Nobody really knows who blew it up. Most people concede that it was blown up. Nobody knows for sure who did it. It wouldn't make much sense for the Russians to do it because they can just turn these things off and on and off over the past several months. That is exactly what they have done to put pressure on Europe. Of course, uh, Biden threatened to do something like this. He threatened to shut down the Nord Stream pipelines. And uh, the defenders of Biden, including uh, Philip Mudd, former CIA official, he was on the Patrick Bet David podcast earlier today. I watched it live. Uh, he's a CIA guy. He pushed Russia Gate very hard. Uh, he said, well, what Biden meant by shut down Nord Stream is go to our European partners and ask them to pull out of the Nord Stream deal. It's like, yeah, we've been doing that for years. Trump was trying to get them to do that desperately, desperately trying to get the Europeans to pull out of that. That didn't work. And of course, you have this clip. But before we get to the clip of Biden, a report from Der Spiegel, a German paper, kind of unreliable over the years, kind of known for planting information. Well, uh, they had reported quickly after this pipeline explosion that CIA warned Germany weeks ago of a coming attack on natural gas pipelines, Nord Stream 1 and 2. Now, they warned Germany weeks ago of a coming attack, but a coming attack by whom exactly? A coming attack by whom? Did the CIA warn them that it was going to be an attack by the CIA themselves? Well, it's hard to say precisely uh, what that means or if that report's even legitimate. Uh, military officials have come out now, as including uh, military officials anonymously, on the record as well, the Secretary of State, uh, Blinken, said, I promise you we will not be able to do that, uh, talking about this uh, uh, pipeline, uh, saying we didn't do it outright. You saw the natural gas chart. That spiked uh, massively in Europe. Spiked a little bit here in the U.S., but not nearly as much, of course. Different contracts, different delivery, different hard commodities that they are based on. But here's the clip of uh, Joe Biden here talking about his ability to shut down Nord Stream. This is back from February 7 of 2022. Uh, if the Russians invaded Ukraine, he said he would bring Nord Stream to an end. Take a listen to this. Let me answer the first question first. If Germany, if uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again, then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. What do you, what, how, will you, how will you do that exactly since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. And he says, I promise you will be able to do it. He has a knowing smirk on his face as he says that. Uh, it's just very clear that perhaps the CIA, perhaps the Department of Defense had a hand in this. And if they did, they would deny it. They would absolutely deny it. Uh, they would. They may even task it to contractors uh, so that they can have their hands clean of it. Uh, it would be a sophisticated operation to blow a pipeline, mainly because you would need to have uh, good intelligence about what sort of countermeasures exist. Are there cameras? Are there sensors? Uh, what exists in terms of preventing something like that? You would have to know uh, in order to do this. So uh, it is uh, quite unbelievable. This is going to reverberate through Europe. It's going to hurt Russia, of course, because now they no longer have these pipelines. Now, there are some other pipelines that Russia has. Now, some people have said uh, about this, they have said, well, uh, now, I saw this commentary on Twitter, now what's going to happen is that 
they're going to have to buy U.S. Uh, LNG, liquefied natural gas, uh, and they're going to have to ship it in and pay 10 times the price. And this was always what Trump wanted them to do. Trump was sort of uh, uh, promoting the U.S. Uh, LNG industry, saying we're going to be the exporter. They should buy it from us. The problem is, as, as you probably can guess, is that bringing uh, liquid natural gas to Europe uh, is a long trek. It takes a long time and it adds a hell of a lot of expense versus pipelining it in from Russia. And so uh, it was never an idea that was going to catch on. It was never economical. Whether you had these Nord Stream pipelines or not, it just never made any sense uh, to do this. Now, you think about that and you say, well, if they can buy U.S. LNG, why can't they buy Russian LNG? Now, I'm sure that for the most part, because of the various areas to ship to, Russia doesn't have the same capacity necessarily, or they, they aren't necessarily tooled up to the same degree to uh, provide the LNG. Everything from, from the, the port infrastructure uh, to the shipping and, and everything involved that would be needed to provide Europe with liquefied natural gas. But imagine the PSYOP of that. These pipelines go down, Europe's freezing, and in roll Russian ships. They coast on into European ports. They provide the natural gas. And they say, look what Russia's doing to save Europe with natural gas after those Americans blew the pipeline. That is uh, an unbelievable kind of psyop. That would be a huge PR victory for Russia. And so uh, that is a, a possible outcome that will come out of this. The other thing is, I would say that, you know, perhaps Russian agents in the U.S. could destroy U.S. pipelines. Problem with that is that uh, we already did that job for them. John Kerry's Department of State and others shut down the Keystone XL pipeline. They've shut down other pipelines. They've stopped construction on new pipelines. They have a huge problem with pipelines. They say that pipelines aren't green because they provide fossil fuels. It's like, well, you need fossil fuels. So how else would you like the fossil fuels to get there? Would you like to put them on a truck? Would you like to put them on a train? All of those options require the burning of other fossil fuels in order to, to move the natural gas. And so how exactly would you propose that be done? And of course, it's, it's never made any sense, but they are dead set on, on promoting their climate change scams and, and dead set on deindustrializing the United States. And this is their way of doing it. Uh, and now what they could do, I would say, if Putin really wanted to retaliate, I would guess what he could do is destroy undersea cables. If you don't know, uh, if you've never seen these, these pictures, these diagrams of all the undersea cables, a lot of people have this strange idea that the internet gets between continents on satellites or something. It doesn't. I mean, you can use satellite internet, uh, but even though satellites are beaming it down to a cable someplace, they're not doing satellite to satellite. For the most part, there are systems that do that. Uh, it's quite complicated. It's, it's lower bandwidth. It has higher latency, obviously. Uh, and, and so that is not how the majority of the internet works. The way it works is with massive fiber optic cables. They're made of glass. They, they are under the ocean, uh, undersea cables, and they go along the coastlines and across the world's oceans. Massive cables. I mean, these things are, in some cases, uh, six feet wide, uh, 10 feet wide, even larger uh, than that. And because they're made of glass, they aren't all that hard to damage. Now, you actually can partially damage them. It doesn't shut down the whole thing necessarily in many cases. Uh, but surely... The Chinese 
the Americans, every first-rate military power and, and their respective intelligence communities have thought about the possibility of destroying undersea cables and what that would mean and how to do it, and they've, they've, they've war-gamed this already. That would be uh, devastating. That would cause uh, a great deal of problems in the world. And, and all I can say is if you have uh, loved ones overseas that you need to talk to for whatever reason, uh, on a regular basis, and you depend on the internet to do that, uh, what I would tell you is that what you ought to probably do is is get to know uh, your local uh, ham radio operator or a couple that are active on HF bands uh, that communicate around the world. I'm one of those people, by the way. Uh, I do so, uh, you know, pretty regularly, communicate around the world. I've communicated to 100 countries uh, using 100 watts of power, all 50 states. You're going to want to get to know those people, and you're going to want a loved one over there to get to know the nearest one to them because uh, you won't be able to communicate otherwise if they blow these cables and they do so in a significant way that cannot be quickly remedied. You aren't going to have intercontinental communication through the Internet if something like that happens. Of course, it would do tremendous damage to the financial markets. It would do tremendous damage to the economy. It would cause problems that you can't even yet imagine. Now, speaking of the economy and uh, the financial markets, one person I have followed in that space for a long time is somebody named Stanley Druckenmiller. He's one of the greatest investors of all time, one of the most successful investors of all time. But that's not the only reason I follow him. I mean, one of the other reasons is that he uh, articulates and observes. He observes and then articulates what's happening in the global economy in financial markets very, very clearly, often correctly, but always very clearly. And he always has an interesting take. I follow him. I follow uh, Jeffrey Gunlock as well. These are two of my favorites. But Stanley Druckenmiller was speaking at this uh, Delivering Alpha CNBC conference. And uh, he had some interesting commentary. I want to play this for you. I think I think you'll find this interesting. This is Stanley Druckenmiller, uh, very interesting commentary here. There was a time you went to college campuses and you talked about an equity and debt. I think in this case, it wasn't necessarily Fed-induced, but it was entitlement-induced. And it it could come, this was 10 years ago, and I think you said sometime between, you know, Nostradamus. You said 2020 and 2035. So it's 2000, is it 2022? Is it happening? We are in deep trouble. So everything I said at those colleges is worse in terms of the metrics. except for one thing. And what I miscalculated was I didn't calculate zero rates, I used 4% rates. But the only thing Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton agreed on in 2016 was don't cut uh, Social Security, don't cut entitlements. Uh, So nothing was done. Joe Biden. And this is uh, what they call the third rail in politics. If you don't know where the saying third rail comes from, by the way, it comes from train tracks. Uh, They have the electrified rail, that's the third rail. And you don't want to touch that because you'll be uh, shocked to death. You'll be electrocuted. And uh, it is a third rail in politics. Neither party is ever, ever, ever allowed to talk about the idea of cutting these massive entitlements. Uh, Cutting Social Security, cutting Medicare. You aren't allowed to talk about that. Cutting Medicaid. There's been new entitlements recently added in on the Republican side. You can't talk about cutting military spending, which to a large degree 
could be made much more efficient, could be cut down. You don't do a universal 10% drawdown. That's not how you do it. You cut programs that are ineffective, worthless programs that, that function almost sort of as a welfare state. Can't talk about that if you're a Republican. And the bottom line is, it's sort of like a Ponzi scheme, and everyone knows this. But the the other part that about it that's like a Ponzi scheme is you start to talk about the idea of cutting Social Security, and I understand why it scares people that are dependent on it, uh, people that think they will in the future be dependent on it or deserving of it, and they say things like, "I paid into that. That's my money. I'm owed that money." And you say, "Well, yeah, it's sort of like paying into a Ponzi scheme, though. If you invested with Bernie Madoff." You may on paper be owed all this money, have all this money, but the money's not there. And so guess what? The option is you can keep ripping people off into the future in order to provide a benefit which has not been paid for, or uh, you can stop the scam. You You have to bring the scam to a stop. You have to figure out how to unwind it. You have to figure out how to promise less and bring in more. There's been no accounting for that. And what uh, Druckenmiller is talking about here is how this is going to get more expensive to provide these benefits. Providing the benefits in a zero interest rate environment is much easier than providing the benefits when the government actually has to pay interest, massive interest installments to borrow all that money. And has excruciated Rick Scott because he dared mention maybe we, we shouldn't be increasing senior pays. But if you look at at the reversal I just talked about, and you use the CBO estimate, which is rates at 3.8%, which I think, frankly, is, a, is pretty optimistic, um, given all the things we've talked about. Tenure just touched 4% yesterday, by the way. Remember when Trump said that what the U.S. should do is issue ultra bonds, issue 100-year bonds, 100-year debt, while interest rates were still at zero? Kind of looks like a genius now. They didn't do much of that at all. And if they had, they could have locked in a lot of money for a long time at a low interest rate, at a very low interest rate, almost zero. Um, but now uh, the 10 years touching four, uh, interest rates are rising, mortgage rates past 7%, some cases uh, just this week. And that's what he's talking about here. Um, by 2027, the interest expense alone on the debt eats all healthcare spending. By 2047, it eats all discretionary spending. So we're now getting into fiscal dominance. By the way, by 49, it eats also security. We're getting to the point now where the interest expense on the debt is so high that it's going to eat up our ability to basically service the next generation. I'm not even sure about the current one. Okay. Um. I brought some cyanide if you'd like one. No, 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 I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking maybe we'll be okay, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but yeah, we, we'll be dead. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um. So that's uh, Stanley Druckenmiller's very haunting prediction, and uh, it is something that you're going to see. The United States government is going to now have to think about whether you can just endlessly borrow in order to fuel this unbelievable level of spending. Because all of a sudden, there's going to be interest installments associated with this borrowing. And the amount of money, the, the spike, like he said, uh, just by 2027 alone, if the 10-year were to stick around, say, 
you, you, you're not going to have a government. The U.S. government's going to go bust. You're not going to be able to do it. If the tenure rate were to go to 6% and stay there, you can now bring that estimate into 2025. And, and, and 2025 is a big year. They always talk about programs that were due in 2025. It was a big <clears throat> benchmark year for a lot of government programs and things. But you have to remember, uh, as we sit here today, 2025 is it's not that far away. We're, we're talking about a, a period of time which is really around the corner in the foreseeable future. And it would be the case that you couldn't continue to do this. Now, you see other governments. We're not the only government that has this issue. We are not. Plenty of governments are buried in debt. And look what you see happening to their currencies. What you have just witnessed happen in the Great British Pound, or not so Great British Pound anymore, is a loss in confidence. The, the market has started to lose confidence in the British Pound. A similar phenomenon is taking place in the euro because markets are reassessing whether or not you can have those nations' currencies, their sovereign bonds, and all the other assets valued the same way if, in fact, in a very short period of time, those nations, the EU and others, are going to be able, or they may not be able to uh, pay, their, pay their bills. They may not be able to pay the coupons on those bonds. You could face a default. You could face a Russian default situation where, we remember from oh, 97, 98, ruble crashed 90%. When the market loses confidence in something like a currency, you can see a meltdown. In a, I mean, look at Bitcoin. You want to know what a meltdown in, 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 a, in a confidence crisis looks like? Look at Bitcoin. And then as the liquidity leaves that market, as market makers can no longer uh, stick in there and, and, and execute transactions, well, it, it goes down even further. The drops happen even more quickly. So it is something that we have to carefully keep our eyes on. It's a no-win situation. It's not like, well, you know, if that happens, I'll short this and I'll do this. It's like, no, you can't win. I mean, maybe if you're on the level of George Soros, you can take out derivatives positions at some kind of scale. But the other problem is who's on the other side of your trade? Now you've got counterparty risk. If they've got a bunch of other trades on and they go bankrupt, you won on your trade, but so did other people. And now they can't pay you what you're owed on the trade because of counterparty risk. That's another problem. So it, it, you, if you've got a situation where currencies start melting down, where government bonds start melting down, where the prospect of defaults in first world nations begin to look like a strong possibility, forget, you know, let alone third world nations, second world nations. It's a no-win situation. No, truly, it's very tough for anybody to win in those types of situations. Uh, here's here's a, a story of somebody who seemingly did win. Uh, maybe they, in the in the eyes of of, of many of us, won the lottery. Uh, and they, uh, they chose to give back their winning lottery ticket. Did you see this story out of uh, Richmond, Texas? Uh, take a listen or a look here if you're on YouTube. This is just unbelievable. 
Only on 13 tonight. Take a look. This is what a couple found in their box. A couple finds this. The military assault weapons right there in their online order from a government sur surplus store. Now the feds are raiding the couple's storage unit. ABC 13's Maya Shea is joining us live now. And uh, Maya, the couple is also saying they absolutely did not want these guns. And we're actually expecting these boxes to be empty. Yes, well, when you buy 108 boxes from a surplus store, you know you're not paying for the guns because they were like $100 or $200 per box. And they were planning to resell it on eBay. So they stored a lot of the boxes here at this storage facility where the Fed spent several hours this afternoon going through them because they were looking to see just how many guns the government may have accidentally sent to Texas. Take a look at these fully automatic M16s designed strictly for military use, and yet at least a dozen ended up in a suburban Houston garage. A surprise find by a local couple who thought they were buying 100 empty gun storage cases from a military surplus website. Just a case, and uh, everyone can can buy it online. But when a friend cracked open a case this weekend, it was far from empty. Not sure what to do, the couple reported the M16s to authorities. Within hours, ATF seized one box and quickly got a search warrant for the storage unit containing 100 more boxes. Experts were shocked. Maya, it's almost surreal to believe something like that could happen uh, nowadays. Uh, it's incredible, it's unbelievable um, to think that weaponry of that grade, military grade style weapons would be shipped. Uh, in containers across state lines, right? That somebody to have access to that. It's pretty shocking. I don't know if it's that shocking. I mean, you think about if you if you're in the military surplus business, you know, maybe you 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 bought at some online auction. They have these auctions with this kind of stuff. Um, hundreds and hundreds of these cases, and they're empty boxes. You have to leave them out in a darn you know junkyard or something and try to sell them. And you, you don't go through every box and looks, look what's inside it. I can per, and you, you have a hundred other things you're ordering and buying and selling all the time. You wouldn't go rummaging through every box to make sure it's empty. You bought empty boxes. Why would anybody include something uh, extra for free? It, it, there's no reason you would do that. Uh, so I don't think it's, it's unimaginable at all. Maybe unimaginable on the government's part. But again, when you have a supply chain stretched out that long, there's a bunch of boxes. Guy accidentally grabs one from that side of the warehouse instead. And it has... Uh, for those of you not watching, uh, M16, uh, by the looks of it, M16A2s, uh, M16A2s uh, in the box, a dozen. And, and there's no telling if the other 108 boxes, by the way, that they bought had M16A2s. ATF hasn't commented on that or anything in them. Uh, but they went in, they took all the boxes away. And uh, the unfortunate part is this couple is probably never going to get these boxes back. The government's infamous for taking things. And whether or not there's any criminal or civil uh, liability or anything like that, they just keep stuff. I don't know why. I don't know why they want, would want to store this junk that, uh, well, the, the very same government sold in the first place to get it the hell off their hands and not take up space, but uh, they seem to do that. Uh, here's the rest of this uh, story here out of uh, Richmond, Texas. Retired Houston police captain and former Marine Greg Freeman says the military carefully tracks all of its weapons because any misplaced weapon can be extremely dangerous. For these boxes to have M16s uh, cased in them is, and, and being shipped to a public destination 
Uh, not only is it shocking, it's a federal crime. The ATF confirms it's now investigating along with the FBI, but won't say how many weapons they've recovered. Do you inspect these before you sell them or did you, you assume they were empty? The military surplus website says it has pulled other gun cases for sale offline after ABC 13 contacted them. They've also notified the Department of Defense. Meanwhile, for the couple who just bought the cases to resell on eBay, they would like the weapons out of their hands. You're trying to be good citizens. We are. We are good citizens, I think. And they'd like to go back to their quiet and small business of reselling surplus supplies on eBay. Well, that was the uh, that was the report there. And um, so M16A2 shipped. And, you know, the, the crazy part about this story is, is just this idea that... Uh, this had to be dealt with so hastily and oh my God, they're, they're real M16s and they have a fun switch on them. They can go into full auto and it's like, well, you can buy an M16. Here, here's the crazy part about the law. Uh, if you are, you know, somebody who can own a gun and pass a background check and you are in a uh, state which is not California or Massachusetts or a couple of these uh, kind of anti-gun states, just a normal state like Virginia, Arizona, not Illinois, but, you know, one of these, Florida, you can buy a machine gun. You can buy a machine gun, an M16, uh, just like those that you saw in that box, presuming, and I don't know if it's precisely like those, because what there, there's one condition. M16s are so evil that you can't buy them unless they were made before a particular date in 1986, there was a, a passing of something called the Hughes Amendment. It was signed into law by that great conservative, Ronald Reagan, same guy who passed amnesty. And it said, after this date, no more machine guns. So you think about this, and it's, it's like machine guns are so terrible, so illegal, uh, that nobody can own them in the general public, unless they were made before 1986. Then it's fine, perfectly fine. You get to do an ATF tax stamp, $200 tax stamp, they call it, and little background check, nothing really more than you'd use for any other gun you'd buy. It's just, it's just so bizarre. It's just like the idea, you know, suppressors. They say, oh, suppressors are so terrible that only the military and law enforcement should have them. Uh, unless you pay us 200 bucks. Pay $200 tax stamp, you know, live in most of the U.S. Uh, states, you can buy a suppressor. It takes about a year to clear the background check because they're so overloaded at ATF. So that is the bizarre part of this. And, and it's just like, well... You know, you can only have a machine gun that was made before 1986 or at a certain date in 1986 and before uh, unless you get what's called an FFL SOT license, uh, which you could also get, pay 500 bucks a year. Then you can actually manufacture machine guns, have all the machine guns you want. If you get an SOT, by the way, bet you didn't know that. It's not widely known. You could manufacture them, make them. Careful regulations, you have to log, you know, your logbook and all the rest. Uh, you're basically a, a federal firearms license dealer at that point. You can do that. A lot of people do because they enjoy machine guns and they want to make new machine guns and all of that. Um, but, it, you know, who can have machine guns after 1986 without the need for background checks, without the need for $200 tax stamps is uh, the Taliban. We left the Taliban boxes of machine guns like this times a thousand. We left the Taliban Black Hawk helicopters. We left the Taliban MP5s and M16A4s, the newer ones. We left them uh, 
M4 carbines. We left them, in some cases, HK416s, ACOGs, uh, Generation 3 night vision. You name it. More uh, military equipment in dollar terms than we have given to Israel and the entire existence of the state of Israel in one fell swoop. Eaten up by the Taliban. They can have them. You know who else can have these kind of uh, newer machine guns that are straight in U.S. military crates? The drug cartels. I mean, how many uh, drug cartel videos have you seen with uh, M16s uh, in boxes like this, pulled right out of DOD boxes? Oh, they can have those too. Want to get to one last story here before we close out the show, but first want to thank our uh, donations. We had MJ, uh, also from the last show, she, I, I mistakenly said he on the last show. It was a small text. I, I wasn't paying close enough attention. She uh, came in with a $50 donation. I appreciate that uh, greatly. And we have uh, a number of others as well here. Uh, pulling those up uh, one second here. Uh, let's see here. We have Aaron uh, who came in with an $80 donation. Um, we also have here one second. Uh, Cameron. Cameron came in with a $100 donation. Thank you, Cameron. Uh, Madison. Uh, $33. Eric, $30. We have here uh, Doug uh, with a $100 donation and a number of smaller donations. Those really help me uh, do the show. I I appreciate it greatly. You can also sign up over at jacobwall.org slash podcast, bring you to the Gumroad page for the show. Gumroad's been great to me. They've been, you know, PayPal basically banned instantly when I gave it out on the show. Uh, but uh, Gumroad's been fantastic with Predator DC to allow us to be supported and keep the show going. So that's uh, a wonderful way to do it as well, to to keep up sort of a sustaining donation. But I thank all of you uh, for doing that. Um, I got a couple questions here. I'm going to take them on the next show. Nothing too urgent. You can send your questions in jacobwool.org slash contact. That's jacobwool.org slash contact. But I want to go here uh, to... This uh, clip from Vice, uh, Vice News, uh, they did a special on what happens to people who are let out of jail, forced to register as sex offenders, and um, what do they do? Sometimes they can't find a place to live because of all the regulations. They can't live around children, can't live here, can't live there. They can't really get jobs because they're registered sex offenders. Sometimes they end up having to stay in jail longer because they don't have anywhere else to go. Sometimes the state pays for their housing. Different things happen. Uh, I think it was probably a worthy topic of examining, but uh, given that they're leftists, uh, they had this really bizarre woman doing it. And forty-three uh, minute, you know, full-length documentary. It's entitled uh, or titled here uh, "Why Some Sex Offenders Never Get Out of Prison." It's like I can think of a lot of reasons why some sex offenders would never get out of prison, but okay. Um, but it's like there's this one novel reason, which is they can't find a place to live. All right, whatever. Um, this documentary, like again, I said probably a reasonable thing to examine with their resources, but it was very bizarre. They talked to this one black guy who was convicted of basically breaking and entering and brutally raping a woman. He's been released from jail now, had to serve some extra time in jail because he couldn't find a place to live. And they give his sob story out, basically. They also interview his victim. She's, uh, that's an interesting thing. I can't afford to characterize all of this here and be efficient on time. But this was right at the uh, very end of the documentary. This was the conclusion here. And I think you will just find this so 
revealing after, you know, almost an hour of this sob story of this guy and a couple of others. Listen to this. We all out here in this world and we all got to make it happen. It ain't nothing stopping me. So, like, I'm very hopeful and confident. After this interview, Ashif sent a picture of his penis to our producer. That was the conclusion of the uh, documentary. And then there was this little section with her and I guess her boss debating whether they should include that and whether it was relevant to the story. It's like, wow, you know, actually, yes, sex offenders have an extremely high rate of recidivism. There is a a sickness in these people. And I have, as you've seen on Predator DC, and and a lot of the footage isn't even out there yet. We're still editing a lot of it. Um, I have sat across the table from nearly 100 of these people. Um, Some of them have actually, you know, kind of just been runners. And some of them have actually gotten physical with our decoy tried to get physical, and with me, in a very minor way, thankfully, we busted one CIA predator in season three that was really throwing some elbows at me, little fat troll of a man, uh, a guy named Paul Harshman, but his elbows sort of felt like pillows. They just were like, he was elbowing me into the chest, and it was like, I could have, you know, responded with an authoritative, you know, shove or lifted him up into the wall, but I figured, you know, there's no this doesn't really hurt. It almost feels like maybe a little bit of a massage or something. It was just, it, it wasn't that uh, painful at all. And I figured if I shove him, he hits his head, yada, you know how that can go sometimes. You don't want to do that. You don't want to get physical unless you absolutely have to. Um, but I know this. I mean, in fact, what I can tell you is that just in the short time that we've done Predator DC, we have had recidivism. We have busted some of these guys twice. In fact, uh, what I can reveal to you today is that there was the a dirty grandpa predator, you probably remember, and uh, the dirty grandpa, Scott Mexic, we busted his videos up on my YouTube, uh, retired CIA guy, turned investment banker, he's a lawyer, he's a Republican, it's a nonpartisan show, uh, Predator DC, and he basically uh, went ahead and he reached out to our second decoy for season three. So he was busted in season two. A few months later, reaches out to our second decoy. And uh, he wasn't able to make it to the sting house because he was traveling. But what he did do is he sent postcards from around the world. This is one from Dresden, Germany. Uh, a postcard made out to, I shouldn't show the address there maybe, made out to the underage teen. He actually sent postcards. Scott Mexic, the guy we busted in season two, coming with dildos and booze and drugs and everything else for a 15-year-old girl. This guy is 64. So yes, the, the recidivism is off the charts. Uh, here was one more clip, though, that I saw from this Vice documentary that's just, uh, it, it caught my attention. I had to clip it out of the, the, the YouTube thing, and I said, what? Uh, listen to this. Today, nearly 800,000 people's names are on registries, often with photos and addresses. They're there for a range of crimes, from rape or assault to sexting with your significant other if they're underage. To sexting with your significant other if they're underage? What in the hell does that mean? Is that, let's listen to that one more time. Today, nearly 800,000 people's names are on registries, often with photos and addresses. 
They're there for a range of crimes, from rape or assault to sexting with your significant other if they're underage. Just so absolutely bizarre. And it's like, are they talking about, I mean, you don't want to say sexting with your significant other if they're underage. Uh, If you, in fact, what you're talking about is a case where you have, you know, an 18 year old and a 17 year old who are both in high school or something, because that's not the, first of all, it's not generally called your significant other. It's called your, 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 you know, your high school sweetheart or something. My God, I don't think that's what they mean though. I think they just say, yeah, let's add the P to LGBTQ and, uh, and just classify this as uh, something that's uh, okay. And uh, it, so that was just a bizarre phrasing there. And, and I don't know, you know, was that something that slipped through the cracks or what? But it caught my attention. Uh, again, that's from the documentary, Why Some Sex Offenders Never Get Out of Prison. Um, a pretty unbelievable uh, clip there. But, um, you know, it's uh, it's a pretty, pretty unreal what happens, what you see uh, here in D.C. And I'm sure, you know, other parts of the country have the problem too. Not as bad as D.C., but it's everywhere. Something we continue to fight and pursue at Predator D.C. I encourage you to check out that show if you haven't. Thanks for everyone who donated. Thanks for everyone who's watching live and, and listening after the fact. Most important thing you can really do, though, is share the link. Share the show. Get it out there. Uh, we got to grow this broadcast to keep it going. And uh, I'm so grateful for all of you who have uh, tuned in and watched this and have shared and have donated I really can't thank you enough. Many of you have been watching for years. Uh, So thanks for watching today. And I will see you on Monday, 2 p.m. live on YouTube and just after on podcast apps everywhere. Thanks and have a great weekend.